Supply, demand, anticipate. Two of these three concepts are talked about daily in all of economics. The other one, well, mostly in preschools, especially when the teacher just lifting off the hazards of the classroom. Nevertheless, we're gonna discuss every single one of them, crack them open, really understand what they mean, and most of all, try and get a sense of what the hell scissor blades have to do with all of this. duo is one of the most iconic duos in all of economic theory, sort of like the Tom and Jerry of their field. I reckon I don't really know how many duos like that there are exactly, but what I do know is that understanding this principle at an early stage of your economic education can go a long way, as it provides you with the comprehension needed to begin to understand the formation of market prices of simple goods, simple products such as the coffee mug or the notebook or the computer, but whose prices invariably derive, either partially or completely, from the interactions of those two magically driven forces called supply and demand, which work together towards the reaching of an equilibrium price in a certain products market, such as the market of coffee mugs. In other words, that little game leads to a market price by which every coffee mug produced by suppliers is then bought by consumers, creating a situation where there is no waste of resources due to overproduction or a lack of available products when compared to the wishes of consumers. It's like magic, so can we say the situation is pretty much an ideal one? Yes, we can. However, that's not always the case, and we'll see the limitations of this theory further on. Anyway, thank you, Mr. Obama. One of these two forces, then, is called demand, and what it refers to is nothing more than the desire of families, consumers, normal people just like you and me, to buy stuff, to purchase goods and services from the market, and at a given price level. Pretty simple, right? But there's something more to it, especially when discussing prices. You see, the realization that demand behaves in a certain way when confronted with a price change is probably as old as trade itself, but only later was it named The Law of Demand! Thank you. Um, I wanna say Gandalf? I guess. What a great non-copyright violation intended thing to say. But the law of demand really is simple. Just think of a supermarket that sells cans of tuna of a particular brand. Let's call it, and this one is for all you Jim Halpert's fans out there, Big Tuna. So let's assume that the consumer base of this brand is made up of 20 people, which means that these people are the ones that regularly buy this product. And although the amounts bought by each might differ, everyone still buys some, no matter how much. Let's also say that the retail price is fixed at $2, and that given these conditions, the consumer base ends up buying a total of 50 cans a month. Therefore, we can say that the demand for big tuna's cans of tuna for $2 a piece is 50 cans a month. It's important you mention both the price and the quantity, and you'll soon figure out why. Now imagine the price has been reduced to $1.50. 
what will now happen to the month? I'll give you some time to think, had you been raised in the middle of the Amazon rainforests, completely isolated and away from any sort of civilization, but I do have a feeling you weren't. So unless Tarzan is hearing this, and if you are, I'm really sorry for spoiling it mate, I can say that demand will go up. It is only rational for us to assume that a cheaper product will mean a larger group of people wanting to buy it, but it still is something to realize. Going back to the big tuna example, where the demand for $2 a piece was 50 cans, it is expectable that the demand for $1.50 a piece goes up to 65 or 70 or 75 cans, it really doesn't matter how many. Firstly, because potential new consumers will be attracted to the product by the lower price when compared to competitors' prices, for example. Second, because even some of the people already in the consumer base will acquire more kinds of tuna, namely the ones who just didn't buy more previously, because it was financially impractical. Which is just a fancy way to say that they're broke. <laughs> okay, okay, so... That they're digging for dinero. That they've got less green than a golf course. Alright, alright, okay, so as I was saying... That they've decided to keep their money in other people's bank accounts. Damn it! Is that all? Okay, great. So, as I was that saying, they've got less so than a pizza hut. Are you mad? <laughs> so, essentially, what the law of demand tells us is that the quantity purchased or with intention to be purchased varies inversely with price. Put simply, when the prices go down, the demand for that product will go up, and vice versa. But that's not the only component that makes up the market mechanism. And because complex products don't appear out of thin air to be consumed, there's a need to discuss the other side, supply. The term supply refers to the availability of the producers, the manufacturing companies for instance, to produce and commercialize goods and services at a given price level. Pretty much the same, only seen from the other side of things. And if, when discussing the law of demand, consumers always had their best interests in mind, which are paying as little as possible for as much quantity of the product as possible, then so will suppliers when it comes to the law of supply. And as you're probably aware, and once again, sorry about that, Tarzan, the full retail price we pay for a product does not represent the whole of the profit made by the manufacturing company out of that specific item you bought. Fantasy business time. Let's picture a company that produces bookshelves, only bookshelves. We know the main components are, well, wood and paint. Maybe some varnish is used as well, but let's leave it at that. Now, do you really think that a small company will chop their own wood, produce their own paint and only then actually manufacture the shelf? Of course not. That would be a major expense besides totally unnecessary, as they wouldn't be able to become specialized in all of these areas all of a sudden and would end up just losing lots of money. So, instead of lumberjacking around or trying to play potion master, what these companies do is they just buy these already chopped wood and the previously prepared paint from different companies that are indeed specialized in that, and therefore more efficient in producing it. We'll cover specialization in another time, but for now, just know this, specialization comes hand in hand with efficiency of production. Anyway, this purchasing of wood and paints is called intermediate consumption because these goods will be incorporated in yet another manufacturing process before they are sold indirectly, whilst part of something else, to the consumers, to the final consumers, to the families, to normal people. Essentially, they work as inputs to the process of producing a bookshelf. 
Therefore, when fixating an initial retail price for their product, the company needs to be able to cover both the intermediate consumption and the company profits. And don't even get me started on taxes. Okay, on a little side note, when we're talking about how the market mechanism determines the price, we're referring to the price, to the average price practiced by all the competing companies. Of course, any company can set whatever price they like, but if they raise it significantly, consumers will start to choose the competition. Imagine a company decides to sell a bottle of normal milk for $5. Obviously, people won't buy it. They will prefer to buy the same milk, but from a competing company whose price is $1 or something. If a certain company's prices are too high, consumers will simply buy the same product from the competition, which has lower prices. So, the market-determined price basically sets the bar for what your chosen price should be if you actually want people to buy a product. Another key point of this law of supply is profit margins. Well, the profit margin refers to everything you get from the sales after paying what you owe. Basically, you can calculate it by subtracting the intermediate consumption and distribution costs and marketing costs to the final retail price. So, if the market price is high, it will attract producers as they will be able to take a bigger profit margin after paying what they owe. And that realization is nothing less than the law of supply, which states that the higher the price practiced in a market for a certain good, the more suppliers will be willing to produce it, and therefore more units of that product will be available in the market. Put very simply, when the prices go up, supply of that product also increases, and when the prices go down, Mr. President, I won't be answering any questions. Thank you very much. Well, okay. When the prices go down, the supply of that product will also be reduced. With fella. And that's supply and demand separately. Rather logical, rather interesting, but normally the key point of this podcast. The key points, the market mechanism and how it works. Something that, after understanding all of these concepts, should come quite naturally to you. So, in a functioning market, where both supply and demand are active always, and assuming that every market has already reached its equilibrium price, there are only four things that really can happen, and all of them are caused by external factors. First, demand can increase, second, demand can decrease, third, supply can increase, or fourth, supply can decrease. Or an asteroid could hit the Earth. Yes, I'm sure that's a very real possibility. Uh, Wait, what should I call you? You can call me the economic spirit. Well, that's kind of a lame name, don't you think? You want to talk lame names, Mr. Entirely Capable of Nothing? Okay, so let's demonstrate how the market behaves using the acai market. Acai is that kind of ice creamy kind of yogurt, but not really that. Um, I don't really know, but assuming that initially supply and demand in that market were balanced, the discovery that acai was actually a superfood brought a huge increase in demand of that same product. All of a sudden, all these new people want to try it, and obviously the producers of the world can't instantly respond to this need. So, as there was great demand for a product of little supply, the relatively few available products were valued greatly, which led to an increase to the prices practiced in this market. Essentially, if there's little of something many people want, its price will definitely go up, as people will compete within themselves and bid higher and higher in order to get the last one of those dolls, computers, or masks you can cover both your nose and your mouth with. Covid reference? Yes. Public health reference? Yes. 
People who think leaving your nose out of the mask is a completely acceptable behavior reference? Almost certainly. But this is called a market shortage, and of course, attracted by the higher prices and consequent opportunity for a bigger profit margin, there was a boom in production, so much that, after some time, the supply ended up more than fulfilling all of the demand, causing an excess of supply, a situation where not all of the product produced could be sold. This situation is called a market surplus, and, you guessed it, it is the exact opposite of a market shortage. In this case, the existence of such a great number of units for a more limited demand will cause the loss of value in each and every one of them, which will lead to eventual price reduction. Then, the market will keep making these adjustments to the overall price until the equilibrium price and the quantity are reached, the perfect situation in this model. The same principles of supply and demand interaction are applicable to all of the other three cases, be it in a situation where, because of a raise in tax rates, people in general have less money to spend and therefore aggregate demand will decrease, the aggregate demand being the total amount of goods and services demanded in the economy at given price levels. In a situation where supply increases, due to the attribution of a subsidy to a specific sector of production, or where an international rise in the price of oil causes an increase in the electricity costs of industry, which will obviously reduce the supply for the products manufactured. In this last one, uh, electricity will get more expensive, so if the, the certain manufacturing company doesn't want to increase the prices, which will make them lose customers, they will have to cut on the profits. So yeah, bottom line, markets are awesome, and the way they auto-regulate themselves seems almost magical. As if an invisible hand was guiding the economy through the forces of supply and demand, uh, prioritizing efficiency, which is maximum in a situation of equilibrium, over everything else. Controlling the prices according to outside stimuli, be it the fluctuation of commodities value, such as the changes in the price of oil, or scientific discoveries, the, the discovery that, in fact, acai was a superfood. And that's exactly what Adam Smith, considered to be the father of economics, uh, a Scottish economist and thinker, stated in his major work, published in 1776, an inquiry into the nature and causes of the wealth of nations. However, despite using his market analysis as a premise for his system of perfect liberty, his laissez-faire capitalism, which we'll later get to, Smith was not the first to realize how a market free from state intervention, such as the fixation of price limits for some products, really functioned. In fact, there is a long list of economists that have contributed to our current understanding of supply and demand, a list that traces us back as to the 17th century John Locke, who mentioned, and I quote, or even better, he quotes, The proportion of buyers and sellers. When discussing the regulation of interest rates, in spite of this very large group of economic thinkers having given their contribute to this market theory throughout the years, the ones who have really stood the test of time are exactly Smith, and Alfred Marshall, from the 19th and early 20th century, often called the father of neoclassical economics, whose main contribute was the design of the supply and demand curves, representing their behavior according to the price of the given product. This gave a, let's say, physical body to a theory which started long before Marshall was even born. He popularized the use of the term supply and demand, and as far as economic theory is concerned, he truly was the rock star of his time. 
After the show, I could bet you're all thinking that the world where supply and demand are all that is will just work perfectly, market-wise. Well, all of you except for Tarzan. And mate, I swear, someday I'll make you the definitive guide for post-channel life. And then you'll finally be able to, first, understand this, and second, go out in the streets and not be arrested because you're only wearing a thong. But things wouldn't be perfect, or at least not completely. There are multiple studies and theories about this, but the general view is that the free market has its downsides, and overall is no bed of roses, but free marketeers and interventionists are something we'll explore in another show. So that's it for today, and oh gosh, I almost forgot, the notorious scissor blades. Well, Alfred Marshall was kind of inventive when it came to his analogies, and so when he wrote his book Principles of Economics, he famously compared supply and demand to the two blades of a pair of scissors. You see, before him there was this general confusion about whether it was supply or demand that determined the price of a product. Well, the Marshallian scissors came to a needle. He stated that, just as you can tell if it is the upper blade or the under blade that cuts the paper, you can tell if it is the supply or demand to determine the market price. It's both working as one, it's always both. From this side, this is goodbye, thank you for listening, this was entirely capable of nothing, and we'll hear ourselves next time. Until then. <laughs>